Good morning. My name is Jean-Marie Henkartz, and I'm a head of unit in the legal division of the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, in Geneva. And I'm going to speak about the topic of where Vienna and Geneva meet, treaty interpretation and the Geneva Conventions. I will speak about treaty interpretation in practice and specifically in relation to the main treaties of international humanitarian law, that is the four Geneva Conventions of 1949. In the 1950s, the International Committee of the Red Cross, or ICRC, for which I work, published commentaries on these Geneva Conventions. These commentaries set out interpretations of the different elements of each of the provisions of the Geneva Conventions. However, in recent years, it became clear that these commentaries that were drafted in the 1950s no longer reflected the developments in law and practice and were in need of an update. Against this background, the ICRC embarked on a major project to update the commentaries on the Geneva Conventions. By updating them, the ICRC intends to provide current interpretations and guidance that take into account the issues and challenges encountered in armed conflicts in recent decades as well as developments in law and practice. To achieve this, the updated commentaries follow a methodology of treaty interpretation that is based on the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. It is against the background of this project to update the commentaries on the Geneva Conventions that I will provide this lecture to share our practical experience of interpreting these treaties on the basis of the methodology of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties or VCLT. The rules governing treaty interpretation are codified in Articles 31 to 33 of the Vienna Convention and are today accepted as reflecting customary international law. These articles constitute an agreed methodology for the interpretation of treaties. This methodology comprises three articles, a general rule expressed in Article 31, provision on supplementary means of interpretation in Article 32, and a specific provision in Article 33 related to the interpretation of treaties authenticated in two or more languages, as is the case for the Geneva Conventions, which are authenticated in English and French. And so my presentation will be along these lines of presenting first on the general rule, which will be a bit longer, and then on the supplementary means in Article 32, which will be a bit shorter, and then finally on the uh, languages, which will be the shortest part of the presentation. So let's start with the general rule of interpretation. Article 31 of the VCLT provides that a treaty must be interpreted in good faith in accordance with the ordinary meaning to be given to the terms of the treaty in their context and in the light of its object and purpose and taking into account subsequent developments. So this rule of interpretation has different elements in itself and the interpretation itself must combine all these elements and of course I will now go through uh, the different elements. In other words, the Vienna Convention does not offer a choice between the different methods of interpretation. For example, a method based on the ordinary meaning only, what would be a literal interpretation, or on the object and purpose only, which would be a teleological interpretation. Rather, it contains a general rule of interpretation that must be applied as a whole, applying all the different elements that I mentioned at the beginning. 
The exact combination of these elements and the emphasis on one or the other element depend on the provision, but always needs to be applied in good faith. So let's now look at the different elements in this general rule, which are good faith, ordinary meaning, object and purpose, and subsequent developments. First, good faith. For the purpose of treaty interpretation, good faith has two prongs. The first prong is a certain subjective quality, namely that the interpreter undertakes their task honestly, or in other words, the absence of bad faith. And so we find an example of this in our work where we discuss consent to humanitarian activities in Common Article 3, because Common Article 3 states that an impartial humanitarian body, such as the ICRC, may offer its services to the parties to the conflict, but does not spell out by whom nor how such an offer is to respond to. In this respect, Common Article 3 differs from Article 18 of Additional Protocol 2, which explicitly addresses the requirement to obtain the consent of the high contracting parties concerned. Despite the silence of Common Article 3, it is clear from the logic underpinning international law in general and international humanitarian law in particular, that in principle an impartial humanitarian organization will only be able to carry out the proposed humanitarian activities if it has consent to do so. So although Common Article 3 does not refer to consent, we do refer to consent as it is mentioned in Article 18 of Additional Protocol 2 and as we rely on Additional Protocol 2 in other places to clarify the, con the content of Common Article 3, in good faith we could not disregard Additional Protocol 2 on this topic where it was maybe more inconvenient because it spells out explicitly the requirement of consent. The second prong of good faith relates to the task of interpretation itself, so how the interpretation is to be undertaken. And this involves applying a set of considerations notably reasonableness, the importance of balancing different treaty elements, and the principle of effectiveness of the treaty. And I will give an example on this as well. So on effectiveness, the International Law Commission, the ILC, has stated that when a treaty is open to two interpretations, one of which does and the other does not enable the treaty to have appropriate effects, good faith, and the objects and purposes of the treaty demand that the former interpretation be adopted, that is the interpretation that will give, uh, that will enable the treaty to have effect. And so we find an example of this in the application of Common Article 3 to armed groups, because Common Article 3 requires a regularly constituted court, and if this would refer exclusively to state courts constituted according to domestic law, non-state armed groups would not be able to comply with this requirement. And then the application of this rule in Common Article 3 to each party to the conflict would then be without effect. Therefore, to give effect to this provision, it may be argued that courts are regularly constituted as long as they are constituted in accordance with the laws of the armed group. And we will then, in the commentary, develop on what the laws of the armed group might be. So, so much for good faith and the two prongs of good faith in treaty interpretation being both the subjective element of avoiding bad faith and secondly uh, on the process of interpretation combining considerations such as reasonableness, balancing different treaty elements and the principle of effectiveness of the treaty. The second element in the general rule on Article 31 is the ordinary meaning of the text. To determine the ordinary meaning 
we must consider the terms of a treaty in their context and in light of the treaty's object and purpose. These are complementary elements because it's indeed impossible to define a treaty term in isolation. Where necessary, we see that in the commentaries we refer to authoritative standard English and legal dictionaries to determine what the ordinary meaning of a term is, and these can sometimes relate to ordinary words. For example, Article 38 of the Third Geneva Convention requires the detaining power to encourage intellectual, educational, and recreational pursuits among prisoners of war. The obligation to encourage encompasses more than merely allowing activities organized by relief agencies or by the prisoners themselves to take place. According to the ordinary meaning of this term, it also means that the detaining power must give support to and help or stimulate the practice of the purposeful activities mentioned in this article. The previous Convention on Prisoners of War of 1929 was too vague on this point and allowed the detaining power to adopt a passive attitude towards these essential activities. The third element of the general rule in Article 31 requires taking into account the object and purpose of a treaty. The Vienna Convention does not expressly state how to identify the object and purpose of a treaty. The preamble may be a good source of information, but the Geneva Conventions do not contain a substantive preamble because the drafters could not reach agreement on its text. Therefore, they did not include a substantive preamble. Anyway, with or without a substantive preamble, we must look at the whole of the treaty and especially the substantive provisions to identify the object and purpose of a treaty. So the text of the treaty itself, including the title, the preamble, if any, the headings and the substantive provisions, are the primary sources to determine the object and purpose of the treaty. On this basis, the commentary on the Third Geneva Convention, for example, identifies the overall object and purpose of that convention as being to ensure that prisoners of war are humanely treated at all times while allowing belligerents to intern captured enemy combatants to prevent them from returning to the battlefield. We think that this balance between humanitarian considerations on the one hand and military necessity on the other hand transpires throughout the convention and therefore is its object and purpose. However, a treaty can have more than one object and purpose, as we heard also from the ILC quote earlier on. In this regard, we consider that Common Article 3 provides the Geneva Conventions with an additional object and purpose, namely protecting persons hors de combat in non-international conflict. And one example where the object and purpose of the treaty in addition to state practice, informed the interpretation can be found in the discussion on the geographical scope of application of Common Article 3. That section concludes that the object and purpose of the conventions supports an interpretation according to which Common Article 3 applies to armed conflicts that cross the borders of a state. As you may know, there can be debate about this based on the ordinary meaning of the terms in Common Article 3. And so in this case, the object and purpose allows us to reach a conclusion on this point. Finally, and very importantly, as part of the general rule in Article 31, the Vienna Convention requires that so-called subsequent developments, that is, developments after the conclusion of a treaty, be taken into account when interpreting those treaties. These developments are indeed important and allow the interpretation of treaty terms to evolve over time. Article 
three of the VCLT lists three types of developments to be taken into account. Subsequent agreements between the parties, subsequent practice of the parties, and other relevant rules of international law. Taking these developments into account is, as I said, very important as treaties age and it may not always be possible to update or amend them to keep up with such developments. Thus, in many areas of international law, not just IHL, more and more treaties will be subject to more and more subsequent developments. So there are three types of subsequent developments, but the first category is subsequent agreements between the parties regarding the interpretation of the treaty or the application of its provisions has not actually proved relevant for the interpretation of the Geneva Conventions because there are no such specific subsequent agreements. The additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions, for example, do not as such constitute subsequent agreements between the parties. They are separate treaties that have not been ratified by all parties to the Geneva Conventions, as the Article 31.3 of the VCLT would require. However, this does not include that the provisions of the additional protocols may be considered in interpreting the Geneva Conventions as other relevant rules of international law, including as reflecting customary international law. On the other hand, the two other types of subsequent developments, that is subsequent practice and other relevant rules of international law, are particularly important when interpreting the Geneva Conventions today. Subsequent practice by states in the application of a treaty is an important source of interpretation and it has been particularly pertinent in the update of the ICRC commentaries on the Geneva Conventions. The original commentaries were drafted in the light of the preparatory work of the Conventions and in light of prior practice from previous conflicts, most notably World Wars I and II. Following the VCLT methodology, the update of the commentaries now takes into account the way the Conventions have been applied and interpreted by states subsequent to their adoption. This is a perspective, of course, the original commentaries from the 1950s could not offer, and it's a perspective that is endorsed, indeed required, by the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. The ILC defines subsequent practice under Article 31 as consisting of conduct in the application of a treaty after its conclusion, which establishes the agreement of the parties regarding the interpretation of the treaty. And this requires a common understanding regarding the interpretation of the treaty, which the parties are aware of and accept. This is generally understood as implying the agreement of all parties to the treaty, which is quite difficult to establish for the Geneva Conventions as they have been universally ratified with 196 states parties. However, the agreement of all parties does not necessarily mean that there must be practice by all parties as in some circumstances, silence can constitute acceptance of a subsequent practice. For example, the fact that states generally did not object to the absence of the appointment of protecting powers in international armed conflicts since 1982 can be taken as tacit agreement of this practice. Hence, we concluded that the obligation expressed in Common Article 8 to appoint protecting powers should today be interpreted as optional. Still, as I said before, subsequent practice as understood under Article 31.3 is not easy to establish in relation to the Geneva Conventions 
as they have been universally ratified and thus require agreement between 196 states parties. However, there's another development that took place. Subsequent practice, which does not meet this threshold, remains relevant according to a recent report from the International Law Commission as a supplementary means of interpretation under Article 32, to which I will turn in a minute. So this is the second uh, part of subsequent developments. The third type of subsequent developments is those of uh, relevant rules of international law applicable in the relations between the parties. And they have to be taken into account as well according to the VCLT. This requirement aims to achieve coherence among different parts of international law. It envisages the systemic integration of international law and requires that different rules and treaties of international law are interpreted in a harmonious and coherent manner so that conflicts between them are avoided as much as possible. Importantly, the VCLT does not refer to the law as it stood at the moment the treaty was adopted, but rather to the law as it stands at the moment of interpretation. It is also the approach of the International Court of Justice, which held in the Namibia case that an international instrument has to be interpreted and applied within the framework of the entire legal system prevailing at the time of the interpretation. And this framework has developed considerably in the past seven decades, since the Geneva Conventions were adopted and since the initial commentaries were published in the 1950s. That explains why this aspect is discussed under subsequent developments. There can also be prior treaties, of course, that have to be taken into account in international humanitarian law, for example, the St. Petersburg Declaration or the Hague Regulations. But the bulk of the other relevant rules of international law have developed subsequent to 1949. These rules include today the additional protocols, as I mentioned before, but also customary international law as it developed since 1949 and other bodies of international law, such as the law of state responsibility, international criminal law, human rights law and refugee law, which have seen tremendous developments since 1949. In the framework of the Geneva Conventions, we also find links with other areas of international law that might be less known, such as links with the law of the sea, international maritime law, international health law, international lab labor law, and even private international law. There are examples from all these areas that show how the Geneva Conventions are interwoven and linked with other areas of international law. On international health law, for example, there's the Famous example of prisoners of war access to tobacco in Article 26 of the Third Geneva Convention, which says that the use of tobacco shall be permitted. And the question how that relates to the 2003 WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. And we address that in the commentary. And on private international law, there is the example of the validity of wills drawn up by prisoners of war governed by Article 120 of the Third Geneva Convention and how this rule relates to the 1961 Convention on the Conflicts of Laws relating to the form of testamentary dispositions. So we note that the Geneva Conventions are related to a wider scope of other treaties, not just other IHL treaties or human rights treaties. To paraphrase a famous poem, no treaty is an island unto itself, and the Geneva Conventions are no exception to this. 
An important caveat is that only other treaty rules applicable in the relations between the parties can inform the interpretation of a given treaty. That means that when those rules are treaty rules, they can be referred to on the understanding that they apply only to states that have ratified or acceded to the treaties in question. However, if they reflect customary international, of course, then they bind all states in principle. So this concludes the consideration of the general rule in Article 31 with the different elements of good faith, ordinary meaning, object and purpose, and subsequent developments. Let me now turn to the supplementary means of interpretation set out in Article 32 of the VCLT. According to Article 32 VCLT, supplementary means of interpretation may be used for two purposes. Confirming the meaning of a term resulting from the application of the general rule in Article 31 or determining the meaning when the application of Article 31 leaves the meaning ambiguous or obscure or leads to a manifestly absurd or unreasonable result. Although Article 32 suggests that supplementary means are optional because it says recourse may be had to these means, experience suggests otherwise. Indeed, the preparatory work, for example, is used routinely by interpreters. And not only in cases where the general rule of interpretation yields unsatisfactory results. Most commentaries on other treaties systematically examine the preparatory work. And that seems logical. In order to understand the context of the terms, one has to look at the discussions that took place and that led to the wording that was ultimately adopted. Article 32 is not limited, however, to preparatory work. It can also include subsequent practice that does not meet the requirements of Article 31, as well as judicial decisions and academic publications. What follows is a closer look at some of the supplementary means of interpretation that we have relied on. The first and most well-known of the supplementary means of interpretation is the preparatory work, or travaux préparatoires in French, that I've mentioned before. This includes successive drafts of the treaty, conference records and explanatory statements made during the drafting. In the case of the Geneva Conventions, a significant amount of documentation has been published, ranging from drafts and reports preparatory to the 1949 Diplomatic Conference, to the stenographic notes, the minutes of the conference, and their official final records. These are all available on the ICRC Library's website and are very helpful in clarifying the context of all provisions and often also in confirming or clarifying the interpretation. But it is important to make a note here about the value of the preparatory work the VCLT makes clear that the treaty interpretation is not limited to the preparatory work as it is only a supplementary means of interpretation. It's not the starting point. So the interpretation is not bound by the original intent of the drafters. The interpretation of treaties can evolve under the influence of subsequent developments, notably as we have seen under Article 31. And this is notable in a range of interpretations, but for example, the interpretation of Common Article 1 which developed from the initial intent of the drafters, maybe, to uh, what it is today under the influence of, of subsequent practice. In addition, as noted before, subsequent practice in the broad sense, not falling under Article 31, can be used as a supplementary means of interpretation. This is recognized in a recent report of the International Law Commission, the ILC, 
which explains that any practice in the application of the treaty that may provide indications as to how the treaty is to be interpreted may be a relevant supplementary means of interpretation under Article 32. And that is very important for the interpretation of the Geneva Conventions because many such instances of practice have taken place in the 70 years since the conventions were adopted. The weight of such practice may depend on its clarity and specificity and whether and how it is repeated, according to the ILC. The ILC also specifies that an element of good faith, of course, is necessary in any subsequent practice in the application of the treaties for it to count as subsequent practice. Many examples that we have gleaned from subsequent practice in our work on the Third Geneva Convention are instances of respect for the Convention. Other references are cited as best practices, providing relevant guidance to other states. In this way, commentary should also be seen as a repository of state practice for states about how conventions have been implemented. These examples from a range of states do not thereby become binding on all other states, but provide information that can assist practitioners in their work. On the other hand, a manifest misapplication of a treaty is not an application of the treaty in the sense of Articles 31 or 32. Violations of the conventions, therefore, do not count as practice, informing their interpretation. For example, a situation in which prisoners were forced to run laps around a camp courtyard until exhaustion is a violation of Article 38 of the Third Convention, giving access to open air and sports, and not a bona fide application that we can use for its interpretation. I think this is quite obvious. When discussing subsequent practice or any other element of interpretation at this point, I should also like to stress that we should not lose sight of the fact that each element is only one aspect of the Vienna Convention framework for interpretation and all the other elements of that framework have to be taken into account. So we will never look at subsequent practice from limited number of states in isolation and on that basis alone determine what the interpretation is. For example, the interpretation that prisoners of war may be allowed to communicate through modern means of communication, even though the text is more based on older technology, but that is supported by some subsequent practice in the broad sense, namely some states which have applied these modern means of communication, but it is also in line with the object and purpose of the provisions relating to family contact. In this context, the commentary acknowledges that the words of the convention are updated in light of modern technology. So, for example, the function of sending letters and cards, as well as telegrams, can now be accomplished through email as recognized in some military manuals. Other supplementary elements of interpretation include judicial decisions and the teachings of the most highly qualified publicists of the various nations. This is a quote. It is a quote taken from Article 38 of the Statute of the International Court of Justice, which says that these uh, decisions and teachings may constitute a source for the determination of the rules of law so, as such, they may also constitute relevant supplementary elements for the interpretation of treaties and the consideration of these elements, judicial decisions and publications of publicists, is exemplified in many other commentaries. First, judicial decisions, and in particular those of international criminal courts and tribunals, 
have proven especially relevant and important in interpreting terms in the Geneva Conventions. For example, the definition of what constitutes an international or a non-international armed conflict, or the definition of acts such as torture, cruel or degrading treatment or hostage-taking under the Geneva Conventions, are largely informed by those developed by such courts and tribunals. National courts have also applied the Geneva Conventions on numerous occasions in the past 70 years, and their pronouncements have been looked at as supplementary means of interpretation. This does not mean, again, that the interpretation by one state's court automatically binds other states, because we're dealing here with supplementary means of interpretation. Rather, such decisions are relevant examples of how the provisions have been interpreted. And over time, of course, such pronouncements can become accepted by other courts and by other states and more widely in state practice and thus become a more widely accepted interpretation. Finally, the teachings of the most highly qualified publicists of the various nations. This refers to scholarly publications such as books and law review articles. Such publications have been recognized as supplementary means of interpretation and are often used by courts and tribunals in their interpretation of the law. Scholarly publications also often refer to and comment on state practice, so they, in a way, build a bridge between Article 32 as a supplementary means and practice under Article 31. Recently, for example, many authors have discussed the geographical scope of application of Common Article 3, and they often do so by reviewing state practice, so that by reviewing this literature we can also glean state practice from it. Hence, when interpreting the Geneva Conventions, we have to review this literature alongside, of course, again, all the other elements of interpretation. It can not, never be done in isolation on one element in the list only. Reviewing these scholarly publications is challenging today, as legal publications on international law and on the Geneva Conventions have proliferated in recent decades. This requires some time and effort to collect and analyze the relevant publications to reflect the diversity of legal writing. Our peer reviewers that help us in uh, drafting the commentaries have been useful and helpful in this regard, signaling publications as well as practice from their regions and or fields of expertise. This is important because the statute of the ICJ makes clear that the publications of the most highly qualified publicists of the various nations must be considered. As said, doing so is a challenge in today's uh, landscape and in the course of research for the updated commentaries we make a particular effort to include publicists from various countries and backgrounds as well as publications in different languages. So this concludes the overview of the supplementary means of interpretation in which we looked at the preparatory work but also subsequent practice in the broad sense that is that which does not fulfill the requirements of Article 31 being that it should reflect the agreement of all states' parties, which is very difficult to achieve in the context of the Geneva Conventions, as well as, as I've argued, judicial decisions and uh, legal publications by scholars or practitioners. In, and this is uh, comprised under Article 32. Finally, we look at Article 33, which deals with treaties that are authenticated in two or more languages. Article 33, indeed, of the Vienna Convention provides that when a treaty has been authenticated in two or more languages, the text is equally authoritative in each language. 
unless the treaty provides otherwise. This provision is relevant for the interpretation of the Geneva Convention because the English and French version of the Geneva Conventions are equally authentic. And so both language versions of the text of the Conventions are therefore equally authoritative. Furthermore, pursuant to Article 33, the terms of the English and French versions are to be presumed to have the same meaning. So in updating the commentaries, we have consistently consulted both language versions to ascertain the meaning of the text, and this is often useful. And I'll give one example. For example, Article 19 of the Third Geneva Convention contains three paragraphs using three different terms in English. Paragraph 1 talks about the combat zone, Paragraph 2 talks about the danger zone, and Paragraph 3 talks about the fighting zone. When we compare it with the French version, we see that it only uses two different terms. The combat zone is the zone de combat, the danger zone is the zone dangereuse, and the fighting zone is also the zone de combat. So as a result, we can see that combat zone and fighting zone in English can be interpreted to refer to the same. And this is already very helpful and it facilitates and clarifies the interpretation. We do not have to break our head over why these three different terms were used, because when we compare it to French, we see, which was also the original language of negotiation, we see that, um, that only two terms were used, and this helps us. So we have been able to uh, use this technique in Article 32 of the Vienna Convention, and comparing the French and English versions has often clarified the meaning of a specific term in English. This concludes my overview of the three rules on treaty interpretation in Articles 31 to 33 of the Vienna Convention Law of Treaties and how they apply in practice to the interpretation of the Geneva Conventions today. When looking at how these rules on treaty interpretation apply to the interpretation of the Geneva Conventions, we see that the rules on treaty interpretation in the VCLT constitute a realistic framework in which all the elements can play a significant role. And I've tried to give some examples on some of or most of the elements in the list of Articles 31, 32, and 33. And we see also that these rules are a coherent framework that combines different elements that lead to the most informed interpretation because they objectively require the interpreter to take all relevant information into account. In a context where the adoption in the near future of new treaties supplementing the Geneva Conventions does not seem to be a really realistic prospect, the interpretation of the existing conventions will remain crucial. And therefore, our reliance on this methodology in the VCLT, Articles 31 to 33, will remain extremely important. And it's important and useful to have this framework that we have tested and have found it to be realistic and also coherent. Using this methodology set out in the Vienna Convention, we have undertaken and we are undertaking this once-in-a-generation study to update the commentaries on the Geneva Conventions in light of developments in law and practice since their uh, adoption. And currently we have uh, finalized three commentaries on the three of the four commentaries and we are working now on the fourth commentary, the commentary on the fourth Geneva Convention. And the result of this study to date confirms that the Geneva Conventions are living instruments that continue to play an essential role in preventing and alleviating the suffering caused by contemporary armed conflicts. Thank you.